Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Jennifer Steiner is the Chief Executive Officer of Lightfully Behavioral Health, which provides primary mental health treatment to commercially insured clients. Lightfully is one of the first behavioral health organizations built around process-based therapy, a framework that delivers more personalized and holistic care. Previously, she was the Chief Executive Officer of Alsana, an eating disorder recovery community. Alsana combines data-driven, evidence-based treatment with a fresh perspective focused on total health and wellness. Communities in St. Louis, Birmingham, and Monterey, Westlake Village, in Santa Barbara, California, Alsana delivers compassionate, best-in-class care to individuals looking for recovery from eating disorders. Prior to Alsana, Ms. Steiner served as Chief Executive Officer of Interchange, a leading provider of residential treatment programs and community-based outpatient treatment programs for struggling adolescents, young adults, and their families prior to Interchange. She served as Division Vice President at DeVita Healthcare Partners, a Fortune 500 provider of kidney care that delivers dialysis services to patients in over 2,000 outpatient dialysis centers in the U.S. and abroad. Jennifer holds an MBA from the University of Michigan Stephen M. Ross School of Business and earned her undergraduate degree in liberal arts from Colorado College. She lives with her husband and three children and enjoys running marathons, reading and being outdoors. Jennifer is also an ardent supporter of Lead Like a Chick, a movement she founded that promotes the power of authentically female leadership. Thank you so much for joining us, Ms. Steiner. We are so pleased to hear about your experiences as a mental health advocate and founder and your passion towards elevating women as leaders. Could we first start with your interest in mental health? Where did this come from? And how did it sort of guide you in your path to tackling these important issues in society? This is one of those questions where I wish I had more of a beauty pageant answer, <laughs> but I'm always a practitioner of transparency. So I have pretty much been in a healthcare services role for my whole career, working in my early years in like skilled nursing, hospice, um, assisted living than dialysis. And so when I, um, about 10 years ago, when I was working for a dialysis company called DeVita, I was recruited for my first CEO job by a private equity fund to lead a mental health care company. So that's how it happened. But here's the funny thing is that even 10 years ago, uh, mental health was just not on anyone's radar. And a lot of my colleagues thought I was going to work for a nonprofit. They said, oh, you must, that's, that's really sweet of you too. (laughs) Um, Because as I said, it just, mental health wasn't even considered a a business. It was a small little um, subset of healthcare that was either not for profit, or maybe there was a small bubble of very private pay options, but not, it was not a space where someone who was in the average population could really um, get care. So my interest came a little accidentally, but I don't. I also don't think anything happens by accident in this world, and I'm super grateful that it turned out that way because it's led to, you know, a decade for me of um, being part of building, I think, a mental health care sector that is a lot more accountable and sophisticated than it was a decade ago. 
What do you think are the unique considerations towards tackling issues within mental health as opposed to, you know, chronic disease or, you know, diseases like coronary artery disease or COPD? Yeah, there's quite a few things. I mean, I think from a a patient or a consumer perspective, you know, we put a ton of societal judgment on mental health in general, you know, and if there's been any positive thing that has come out of COVID, Mm -hmm. it's been, I think, a bit of destigmatization happening there. So, uh, you know, but it's, it's still very much the case that you know, we're not opening our front doors and shouting out that, you know, we have a mental health condition and we need mental health treatment. That's still something that's quite hush hush. So I think that that's been one big challenge is just helping um, folks to see that um, mental health conditions are, are like other. There's not some special judgment placed around them. I would say another one is because mental health is a newer sector. You're just seeing significant inconsistencies in how care is delivered. I would say a lack of accountability by providers. And I don't say this in a judgmental way. It's not that that there's an intentional, but it's a very young sector. I mean, again, because 10 years ago was right around the time when the Accountable Care Act passed and it started requiring payers to pay, insurance payers to pay for treatment. So as in any young sector, it's highly fragmented unsophisticated and there are a lot of sort of mom and pop providers who don't have a lot of capital <laughs> to put into place uh, sophisticated systems or outcomes measurements, et cetera. So I think that's another big one is that it is pretty underdeveloped. And then I'd say thirdly, because again, for many of these same reasons, there's just a lack of integration with physical health. You know, I always say, it doesn't, you know, when we really step back, it doesn't make a ton of sense that we've now sort of segmented off mental health and physical health. And we are one human being um, with one whole health <laughs> profile. And, um, and so, um, so that would be another big one. Good news is we're starting to see movement in all of those areas towards a more integrated and sophisticated and accountable system. I'd like to transition the conversation to uh, light, lightfully behavioral health, um, your current venture. Um, tell us how you got started and I'll uh, you know, take it from there in terms of the logistics of the company. Yeah, sure. I'd love to share the story. So as mm-hmm. I mentioned, I've been in mental health for almost 10 years. My first two uh, roles in mental health were CEO roles for private equity-backed mental health care companies. The first one was a company focused on adolescent treatment, pretty high acuity. And the second company was an eating disorder provider. And in both of those cases, I was hired in by the private equity funds to, they had purchased a company and asset and um, were hoping to grow it. And I was brought in to do that job. And both of those ventures were really successful. I feel really good about the companies that we grew and the care models that we developed there. Um, and in my last venture, I, I started to notice um, that that venture being focused on eating disorders. We started to notice that, you know, there were lots of cases where we'd have a client or a patient, we use those words interchangeably, that would be in for eating disorder treatment as their eating disorder would becoming managed and they were, it was no longer a primary issue for them. 
oftentimes other conditions would sort of replace that. <laughs> so, you know, we may get our eating disorder under control, but now my depression is starting to spike. So in those cases, it, it was always best practice to um, help someone find a program that would be primary treatment for their condition. So in this case, someone with primary depression. And we, we would call the programs like that unicorn programs because there, we just didn't, we couldn't find, there weren't very many um, good options there. So that was sort of the first thing that was on my radar was, hmm, that's interesting. There's like a segment here where there's a lot of need, but not a lot of providers. And then, you know, COVID hits and we are seeing demand through the roof, mental health issues exploding and not just the number of them exploding, but the acuity level exploding. And what I mean by that is, you know, a person who may have struggled with anxiety and could manage that with an outpatient therapist once a week is now becoming more and more anxious, needs more care. And the outpatient therapist is saying, shoot, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not equipped to support you. I, I, I get paid for an hour a week. <laughs> uh, I can't case manage, et cetera. So we're watching all of this happen. And then I, I just, I really recognized that there wasn't layer in the national space that was focusing here, like that was focusing on, and I'll describe what we do, but I call it general mental health, meaning not substance abuse treatment, primary, not eating disorder treatment, primary, but depression, uh, anxiety disorders, PTSD or trauma disorders, and personality disorders, those four. There's nobody focusing on this general mental health segment, middle acuity, I'll explain that. <laughs> so the acuity spectrum for mental health sort of goes from the highest acuity, which is inpatient psych. So hospital-based psych. So not that, because there's, there's plenty of players there. Right, right. And, and the lowest acuity is outpatient, like fee-for-service, once-a-week therapist, but in the middle. So there's a lot between those two places being, you know, in a hot lockdown unit or going one hour a week. So that middle space, there, there wasn't a national player that wow. was owning it. And I thought, wow, look at the world right now. Like this is an opening. This is an opening to put a stake in the ground, um, to stand for excellent treatment for these conditions, which are the lion's share of conditions in this middle acuity space, which has been left unattended and um, to do it really well, to grow, to scale fast and effectively, sort of DeVita-esque wherever you go and you step into a light fully facility, whether it's in York or in California or anywhere in between, you know what to expect. You have a, a reliable care model to lean on. So that's where the idea came from. And the next job on the list was to get funding. <laughs> so it was a good, it was just a good time for me because I, I had led two companies successfully. And so I, I had a lot of great options and I, I call it, I have a little joke. I call it the bachelor of private equity phase <laughs> where I um, spent a lot of time getting to know different private equity funds and chose the one that felt right to me to partner with. And something to note here, because I know for folks who don't live in this world every day, um, private equity and venture capital are a little bit different. Venture capital is actually a subset of private equity, but my company actually sits in what's called middle market private equity. So we're not venture backed. We're actually backed by, by private equity that mainly invests in, in proven care models. So they're not testing new, new business models, but they're, they're supporting business models that work. So because I have worked in very similar sectors with similar models, um, this, this fits better. 
And, and basically what that means is I got more money, but I, there's a lot more reliability and our ability to scale because of the proven model. And then I gathered up my leadership team. That was sort of step three. And this was a really fun phase as um, I've had really great people I've worked with through the years now. And I thought, wow, this is cool. I can just sort of handpick this team. And um, it turned out that this was the time for um, that to be all women. Um, it, it started as kind of a little twinkle of an idea. And as I worked through the process of finding the right folks to join, it just, each one is female. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta finish this out. So even the CFO is female. And so that's been a really, a really fun and special part of this. Um, we launched the company, we were funded, and we've been set steadily preparing to open facilities. We opened our uh, first DeNova facility on March 1st in Brentwood, California. So consideration of private equity funding versus VC funding, a lot of our entrepreneurs that we've uh, promoted on our podcast are explicitly getting grants or VC money. Tell us about, you know, the unique considerations of private equity money. You did discuss this proven model and reliability, but tell us more about what you mean by that. Yeah, let me do my best. So the way that it, it, it's been described to me is venture capital is designed to invest in, in sort of conceptual business models where 99 fail and one doesn't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's how they're built, right? So okay. yeah. things like, you know, never heard of it, this sort of um, advancement or innovation, uh, we're going to completely put a throw on its head, you know, the way that we do this or that. And that's, that is why how venture is built. And, and so venture is a very common place to go when someone is launching something that is just unproven. And, 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 and subsequently the dollar amounts are also small, <laughs> you know, it's, it's venture has to be thoughtful um, and disperse funding all over, and then they get their big win. So mm-hmm. private equity, middle market, private equity, and right. venture is like a, is a segment of private equity is the big umbrella, but middle market private equity is really designed mainly to take a company of some minimal scale and to scale it up. So most of the ways that middle market private equity is playing is they'll buy a founder owned business. So let's say, you know, like um, you've got a company that has, has a few locations providing mental health, PHP, IOP care, and they'll buy that and say, okay, now we're going to invest a lot of capital to scale that up. Mm-hmm. So this is a kind of weird <laughs> thing that I'm in because that's right. what I've done the last two times. You're used to it, right? Yeah. So they, the, the private equity fund has purchased these companies. And in the last two instances, they brought me in because I'm more of a scaler mm-hmm. and they've said, okay, now scale this up for us. This was really unique because I said, Hey, I have an idea from scratch. And we, frankly, because there aren't a lot of great players out there yet, there wasn't a lot to buy. <laughs> There were a little, there was a little bit, but there really wasn't a lot. So that's a really unique and cool place to be because it's just so it's really blue ocean. But because it is a model of care, so the levels of care and the payment model, which is commercially reimbursed fee for service model at these levels of care, is being done already. It's out there, just super fragmented. And it's being done like in substance abuse and um, eating disorders, but there's just not a lot of it in the general mental health space. So those are pretty unique circumstances 
that allowed for that kind of funding. But I was I was funded with 30 million just to start with more to come. I mean, so those are big dollars wow. compared to like a venture grant. Um, anyways, but so I, I'm more of a middle market CEO than I am a, an entrepreneur. I think entrepreneurs are so amazing and brilliant. <laughs> I guess I guess I'm becoming a version of one now, but I, that's not been my. Are there any limitations of getting PE money? I've always heard of PE um, firms uh, buying up, you know, doctors' practices, and there's a question of, you know, the control and who's really managing these enterprises. Can you comment on that? Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, when I had this concept, it's the mm-hmm. beginning, the very beginning, I thought, maybe I'm going to self-fund this. Like there was a hot second where I thought friends and family, you know, I'm going to gather up and I'm going to do this because I right. want to maintain control. Um, and that is one of the great benefits, right? Of either bootstrapping or doing, you know, some sort of minority VC. Right. But I had to be, I think it's really important we're all honest with ourselves about yeah. what we do best, right? And what I know I do best is sort of scale in a larger way, just because that's my experience. That's what I, that's the work I've done. So, but you are absolutely right. So in essence, when you decide to go, like, let's say you have a founder, a woman founder listening that she's got a few practices and she's considering selling private equity. I mean, you're going to hand over majority ownership, 70%, 80%, 90%, you're handing it over. And in return for that, you get significant funding, right? Of the dollars we're talking about, you get a ton of support good private equity funds are really empowering to founders and help them to put in all the things, all the scalability that you need. Because again, a founder isn't, that's just not the lane they've played in, but private equity plays in it all day long. So a good private equity partner is going to support a founder that way and, and help them to scale in a way they never could do on their own. Now, your question is an awesome one. So, okay, they've got majority control. <laughs> Who's calling the shots? This is healthy. You're hiring an all-female exec team. So yeah, yeah, calling some big shots. But again, here's the here's the thing. I mean, it there are as many private equity fund types as there are types of humans. I mean, they're over-controlling, sort of, we're gonna take over and run the show for you behind the scenes private equity funds. And then there are funds where they say, hey, we're we're backing an amazing leader. And we're going to stay in our lane and do what we do. We're going to offer up support if you want it. But you have to be super discerning right. when you <laughs> when you make a choice. And that yeah. was my situation. So I had to be very discerning that I needed a fund that was uh, a supporting and empowering fund that respected me for what I brought to the table that was going to give me autonomy to grow the company the way I wanted and make the decisions that I wanted. Yeah, picking your investors, I think, is is just much more than a transaction. It's the relationship, it's their connections, and also their trust in you as an entrepreneur at the end of the day. So it's just, it's probably one of the most, if not the most critical aspect of building a business uh, beyond the product itself. I'd like to learn a little bit more about the product before we move on to lead like a chick. Could you tell us how, you know, kind of the brass tacks of your business model, you did allude to the rapid expansion to 18 sites in California and within a year of this being founded, that's amazing. But how does it work in terms of, you know, myself, if I want to seek out help with a particular mental health issue, where would I first start? Question. And um, I oriented us a little bit on the acuity spectrum, right, I call right. the sandwich. So, and we're in the middle. So the actual services that we provide are three levels of care, three different 
care settings. The first one's called IOP, Intensive Outpatient Services. That, what that looks like is a person who's struggling from a mental illness will come into our program probably three to four days a week, maybe three to five hours a day, and they will get individual therapy, group therapy, wraparound services, skills building, all the sort of a whole plethora of things to support them. The next level up is called day treatment. And that's just the same thing, but more. So it's five to seven days a week, six to 12 hours a day, depending you know, on someone's care plans, very similar. So you're going into an outpatient setting and getting very intense services. Often that comes with supportive housing too, if someone chooses. And then the highest level of care is called residential treatment. That's going to be in a home-like setting, but it's a 24-hour care model. Um, someone would often stay there for 30 to 45 days. Are you partnering um, so, with existing facilities and providers or are you having your own, you know, front in terms of location provider treatment plan? All, of, all our own, all our own. So we, oh, um, wow. we actually partnered with a real estate investment firm that purchased, we do like sell these back. So they purchase our Amazing. properties for us. So we're not out buying properties, but we, you know, we're standing these up from the ground. So facility team, everything is all being built rightfully, but that's a, big lift for 18. <laughs> so, but that's the yes. care. So that, that's the, that's what you're getting. As far as who we treat, as I mentioned, I mentioned the diagnoses, those three diagnostic buckets, and we serve a commercial insured population. So we're not serving government pay at this time. I mean, mm-hmm. boy, that would be lovely to open our doors, but as mm-hmm. I'm sure your listeners know and have heard before the payment and reimbursement levels are very challenging there. Um, yeah. So, but I feel really good. I mean, to, to offer this to the commercial insured population is a lot more than has been done. So we're definitely making a dent there. So, you know, the way it pretty much looks is, hey, I'm I'm a consu- either I'm seeing a therapist and my therapist says, Jennifer, gosh, you know, this is getting really tough to do, to help you at this mm-hmm. one day a week. Let's look at sort of more robust options. And so my therapist or I or both may call into Lightfully, into our, we have just an 800 line um, that is staffed 24 seven. We have master's level clinicians there to talk with folks as they call in. We do a robust clinical assessment. It's like a couple hours. We set up time to do that. And then we offer a suggestion and we say, hey, based on this clinical assessment, here's what we think you may be struggling with. Here's what we think would be an appropriate care environment for you. And then we start working with your insurance and we insure coverage and then we get you um, admitted. So, and then the lengths of stay go from, you know, at each level of care, 30 to 90 days. It really depends on someone's um, condition. So the end of the treatment, you know, we do a lot of follow-on treatment. There's case management, online support groups, et cetera, et cetera. One thing I'll mention that I didn't say is, you know, we have these three levels of care. All of these are brick and mortar or in-person. Which is, we're, we're, I'll touch on that in a minute. We're really putting a stake in the ground there that that's so important. And we are offering a virtual IOP that is a telehealth option for people at that level of care. My little nugget here is I, I get a little bit worried with the frenzy right now in venture and PE with app based mental health. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, app based mental health, telehealth, all super, super right. important. Very important components of a continuum. What worries me are two things. Number one, what we've learned during COVID is virtual connection is causing massive disconnection for humans. 
And the rise of mental health issues are very much due to this sort of virtual connection that's not really yeah. connection, connection. Yeah. So what, in one hand, I'm like, we're using the thing that's harming us to try to fix it. And then the second concern, oh, I have three. The second concern <laughs> is that we have a whole bunch of people that are inappropriate for virtual care. Like if someone is at a level of severity, yeah, where liability they, and also yeah, like if you're you know the right suicidal ideation, does it make sense for you to be getting on an app or do you need to be no. in a supportive care environment? And then the third thing I would say is here's what we know about mental health. Like there, this it's actually quite simple. The leading indicator of recovery is the therapeutic connection between the therapist and the patient. So that is literally the leading indicator. So if you are an app or a robot or, you know, a, a solution where you don't even know who you're getting on the other end, like there is no therapeutic alliance. And so I'm concerned about the efficacy for those solutions. So again, not to turn our back, we're integrating many of these into our care model, but I think like anything, like like the diet fads where just eat grapefruit. Like what we know is we need balance right. <laughs> in, in most things in life. And so I believe in mental health, we need balance. We need to integrate some of these digital solutions and we cannot replace in-person human face-to-face -face interaction because we know that that is what works and that most mental health conditions are being caused by a lack of human connection. To transition to lead like a chick and hear about how this movement came about what inspired you to really push forward a, a more formalized kind of coordination of, of women as a leader in, in mental health yeah absolutely so this is what this is so I you know I've been a, a woman business person for my whole career and and as I grew up through the, the ranks I, I started to realize that there were times, there were a lot of times actually, where I felt like I had two choices to be, you know, as I sat in a meeting or as I was operating within a system, within a company, I could be myself, exude leadership qualities and function in the world in a way that felt natural. And I happen to be a pretty feminine female. You know, I think one thing to recognize here is that gender and what I call gender characteristics are not always correlated. So there are very feminine men and there are very masculine women and vice versa, right? So but when I speak of masculine and feminine, I'm speaking more of qualities, like um, characteristic qualities. For example, you know, we often speak of the feminine as nurturing, empathetic, compassionate, uh, communicative, right? Connective. Those are things that, that many men who carry a lot of feminine are those things. But and so, so just let me be clear about that. But what I was finding was you know, as a feminine female, I felt like if I acted the ways that felt natural to me, I was looked at sort of negatively or or would shorten my leadership potential consideration because it was I was too soft, I was too kind, I was too communicative, I cared too much, or I could emulate these other behaviors that I was picking up on that people really seemed to be succeeding with, and things like command and control and directiveness and competitiveness. You know, I think it was pretty unconscious in the early years, and I became more and more conscious as I got older. And I thought, I don't like this. <laughs> like, this makes me feel like I'm in sort sort of conflict that just doesn't feel good. And so I, I remember thinking, hey, if I ever get to lead a company, 
I'm going to, I want to do it in a way where everybody's welcome in a way, like every style is welcome. So not just the masculine and not just the feminine. And so as I started leading companies, I began integrating some of this into my philosophy and even into the way the company functioned. And so I, I created Lead Like a Chick, which is, it's a catchy name. And and really what it means is like, I, Jennifer can lead in my inherently natural way and be effective, right? For me, that's like a chick, (laughs) Um, but it can mean, you know, someone else may lead in a very different way that feels very um, true to who they are. So, so this is Lead Like a Chick is basically a welcome to companies, to all of us as leaders to have an inclusivity of style of leadership that we may have not had uh, historically and to understand that these feminine qualities actually are incredibly important in value creation. I'm not just talking about the nicey nice, like, oh, it feels good if you're nurturing. It makes it feel nice here. (laughs) I mean, we're actually seeing that these characteristics lead to more profitable companies than the contrary. And I mean, it's starting to get a lot of good airtime now. I think there's just a Forbes article that came out last week on empathy being the number one um, important leadership characteristic. So it's, you know, we're in a world now where this idea is a little crazy 10 years ago, but, um, but we're seeing it in studies that, you know, being caring about other humans in your company, having empathy around them, giving folks the ability to speak in a meeting. Like I remember being in meetings as a younger leader and one of the CEOs of a large fortune 100 company that I worked for was said, no talking, do not talk when you present, I will read the slides. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that's what? No talking? I mean, <laughs> as a woman, I'm very verbal. So my companies, we try to create mechanisms that welcome all styles. So the empathetic, the um, direct, you know, and everything in between um, have a seat at our table. And we recognize that balance in these things is going to create more value than telling folks that there's one way to lead. How do you enforce that within your own organization in terms of you're managing hundreds of people at this point, given the expansion that you've been scaling and and working with, you know, providers with, you know, your your C-suite as well. How do you enforce this idea of having this kind of individualized leadership style and and welcoming and, and being empathetic with so many people? Yeah. That's a good question. The establishment of a company culture is the most fundamental thing that we do when we build and grow a company. And I think that CEOs, uh, everyone says culture is important, but, but I would say the majority of CEOs, even today, see that as sort of the extra fun fluff stuff on the side. But when push comes to shove, you know, I have to push that over and get real down and dirty on, you know, efficiency or profitability. But I'm actually to the contrary. In fact, if I got into like critical, you know, <laughs> SOS situation in the company's performance, like that would be the last thing to go for me. What culture does is it a stat, I mean, think about how it works even in just human society, right? It establishes a set of principles that we all adhere to in, in, no matter where we are, or what we're doing. And so when you are a multi-site healthcare company, how do you create a consistency of quality and and client or patient experience? You can't policy and procedure the heck out of that to make it happen. It has to come from this root of a shared set of principles that we all carry. And then we, um, they come out in us in sort of unique and individual ways, but the core of it is, is the essential piece. So for example, in our company, 
we say clear as kind is one of our cultural guiding principles. What does that mean? That means that telling someone and being true and <laughs> saying what needs to be said, but, but doing so in a spirit of kindness, right? And, and care for that individual is like an essential principle for our company. So no matter what, and no matter what meeting I'm in, whether I'm speaking to a family member of someone in our care, a vendor, a board member, an investor, right? I am going to I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be direct about what I say and I'm going to do so in the spirit of caring. So the answer to your question is I believe that laying these foundational truths down um, and not just saying them, but integrating them into our operations, speaking about them regularly, considering it as a part of performance reviews, um, leaving them through the way we conduct the meeting and pulling them into, okay, everybody, this is our clearest kind moment. What, what's your feedback on this meeting, right? Like uh, truly operationalizing these things is the key. Like this is the key to scaling well and allowing people to have some kind of freedom, right? And their expression within these core beliefs. Thank you so much uh, for, for being with us. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.